This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. There have been 216 managers in the history of the Premier League, yet few have taken a more circuitous route to the pinnacle than Bob Bradley, the New Jersey native who became the first American to coach in the English top flight when he was appointed Swansea City's manager in October 2016. Though an unknown quantity to many outside of the United States, Bradley's long been an American trailblazer, having been let go by the US national team in 2011 a dismissal that still rankles. He struck out on a singularly unorthodox path via revolution-gripped Egypt, the frigid climbs of Norway's Tipperliga and the aspirational grind of the French second division Ligue 2, never letting go of his long-cherished dream of one day testing himself in the top flight. Though Bob is and will always be a phenomenal human being, his tenure at Swansea has been far from easy. Yet through it all, he remains a noble, realistic and stoic gent. I travelled to South Wales to sit down with Bob for a film, Premier League Download, Bob Bradley, A Football Odyssey, which will air on NBCSN on Boxing Day. That's December 26 to you, America. In it, we retrace his epic career journey, a test of faith on an almost biblical scale, and discover what life lessons he's gleaned from the unforgiving grind that is the Premier League. Now he's finally arrived. Bob Bradley, we're a long way from New Jersey. You grew up there. You went to Princeton, you never played professionally. You actually took a job at Procter & Gamble right out of college, but when you were at Ohio University doing a masters, the team needed a coach, the game called you back. Age 23, you took your first coaching job. Many of your players were actually older than you. What was your idea in your head when you took that job? Were you like, this is the first stepping stone to the English top flight? Or were you just like, God, I'm just so happy not to be in an office cubicle? Procter & Gamble, I wasn't in an office cubicle. I was out on the road going into supermarkets, 10, 12 a day, making sure that the, the product was in. And it was clear to me that that sales management career wasn't the right direction. I had a friend who was at Ohio University, and he was coaching the team. And I went out to interview for the sports administration program. And... The plan was that I was going to be the assistant coach for my buddy, Tim Murphy. I got there and Tim said, look, when you go to speak to the athletic director, he's going to talk to you about being the head coach because I've got an internship with Spectacor, so I'm going to Philadelphia. So I met with Harold McElhaney. Soccer at Ohio University was not high on their list of supported sports because he was happy to get a young guy who could replace Tim. And for me, it was everything I hoped. And I was always the player that thought more about the game than everybody else. I was always the one that 
knew the difference between good training sessions and bad training sessions in my own way. I was a student in the game. I thought I knew a lot more than I did. <laughs> and when I got the chance to coach, I got to try. All my ideas, there was nobody there to tell me what was right and wrong. I was younger than a few of the international players. And the young Americans, they weren't that much younger. And so I would still join into training. For me, it was a real opportunity. And immediately I knew that's what I wanted to do. Between 1984 and 1995, you returned to your alma mater, Princeton, and you led them. But even then, you had your eye on European football. The story I love about your Princeton career, you would watch tapes of AC Milan and try and encourage your players to play sweeper like Baresi or defend like Maldini. With the creation of an American professional league, MLS, you jumped aboard as an assistant tasting instant success. MLS Cups, 1996 and 1997, even more remarkably taking a first year team, Chicago, the next year, all the way to the trophy in your first year as a head coach. Less successful at the Metro Stars, where you were fired. There's an old coaching adage, which is the first day you were fired as the coach is the first day you really understand what it means to be a professional football coach. Was that true for you? There is truth to that. The third season, out of the blue, they brought Alexi Lawlison to be the new president and general manager. Before he had even come to speak to me or speak to the team. He showed up in town and he started saying things needed to be changed. So even before I sat and talked with him the first time, I knew that the writing was on the wall. We had a very interesting first meeting. Alexi, I think, was new at this stuff. I don't think he had the sense of how to really put everything on the table and talk man to man about things. I challenged him right away. And I knew that he was going to wait to the moment when he could get rid of me, and he would. I never told anybody, but I worked that whole year knowing that the first chance he got, I was gone. We were still with a couple games left, fighting to be in the playoffs. We lost a home game near the end, and sure enough, Alexi rolled in the next day and said, I'm going to make a change. The final discussion was just as good as the initial one, because I didn't back down an inch. I still think that he didn't know what he was doing. And I've told them, but at the same time, that's football. And so now you're out. You always believe that if you're in a tough situation, you won't change. And I was in it and it didn't change me a bit. And so no matter where I go, I believe in my work and myself and that part's never gonna be a problem. You move from club football into the international realm. You're awarded the US men's national team job first on an interim basis in December, 2006, and then Permanently, May 2007, you won a Gold Cup, you topped a World Cup group in a group that included England. Yes. You had a bad run, 4-2 loss in the Gold Cup final against Mexico. Yeah, that's a sore subject for me because everybody talks about it being a terrible loss. And yeah, when you lose to your arch rival, it is a terrible loss. And when you have the lead 2-0 and eventually you lose 4-2, it feels worse. But it was a hell of a game. And sometimes you're involved in a football match and both teams go at it and there's chances. The game comes down to, at times, who makes some plays and who makes a save. But five years on, Bob, knowing what you know now about football and about making more with less, is there anything that you would do over about your time with the US men's national team if given the chance? In the big picture, no. 
But little details, sure. The big part for me was that when I took over, reestablishing the idea that no matter where we played in the world, that we were going to be hard to play against and that we were going to work as a team to be organized, to put teams under pressure, to create chances, and to really have an identity that we could go on the field with any team and make it difficult. You were fired by the US. The timing was not ideal. Even then, your eyes were set on Europe, but it was July, not a good time to find a vacancy. Within a month, you ended up, to me, in the most unexpected place possible for an American manager, Egypt. Was that a symbol to you of just how far an American coach had to travel to gain recognition and respect? After all the discussions, I thought, this is a challenge. This is something special. My wife, she's the best because I can't imagine that too many wives of soccer coaches in the United States would be that happy when the husband starts talking about going and taking a job post-revolution in Cairo. But she said, we'll do it together. And it was everything that you would hope for as an experience, both in terms of the football and culturally. Fantastic people, warm people, proud people, proud of their culture, their history, proud of their football. Not a week goes by where I still don't hear from players, from friends. Was there one moment from your journey that really captured for you just the heart of African football and, and the challenge that made it so thrilling for you? February 1st, 2012, was still during the period when I was assessing players, going to all the league matches. And that was the day where there was the massacre in Port Said, 74 young Ali supporters went to the stadium and lost their lives. We were at a game in Cairo Stadium between Zamalek and Ismaili. We heard at halftime that there was real trouble and the game that we were watching was abandoned and immediately went back to our apartment and spent the rest of the night following the news, realizing the enormity of what was going on. And when all this was going on, and the league shut down, uh, and when the league shuts down, players stopped getting paid, I knew that a few months later we'd start World Cup qualifying. And so we had to figure out how we were gonna have those guys physically and mentally ready, given that their football world, not to mention everything else that was going on in their homeland, was so uncertain. And so we started having camps we couldn't play any games in Egypt. We'd travel to any place where we could get a game. We had match agents helping us. We played games in Khartoum, Sudan, some in Abu Dhabi, some in Dubai, some in Doha. And so as we got closer to those first two World Cup qualifiers, I felt like we were starting to build a team and we knew the responsibility. The first match was in Borg El Arab in Alexandria. Empty stadium against uh, Mozambique. I still remember the day before when we trained there, pulling everybody in and saying to them that when the referee blows the whistle tomorrow, you need to all look into the stands and imagine that there's 85 million Egyptians in the stands, because if they had their chance, everyone would be here. We won that match. We then had the follow-up second leg of that international break in Conakry, Guinea. We prepare for this big match. We know that Guinea in the group is 
the other top team, and we win an incredible match 3-2. And so we've taken six points from these first two games. And now we get into the locker room. It's a small little locker room. It's just below ground level, above the lockers. There's windows and there's bars. And now that is street level on the outside of the stadium. As everybody's celebrating and hugging, you start to hear this pounding on these windows. And as the windows open, pressed against the bars are faces, young kids. And now they're saying hi, they're yelling, and the hands are coming through. And we still have a bunch of juice boxes that are in the locker room that haven't been used. And so we start handing juice boxes up. And now you see these hands taking juice boxes, and then the next face is coming up, and the next one. And so these kids were so excited to take a juice box. And then we have some players who start to give away shin guards. And the sense of this part of Africa, these young faces, these hopeful eyes that are just right there outside your locker room after a game, not able to come in, but still watching you and then seeing the response when these players would find a way to reach out to them. That's a small part of African football that nobody would ever really know if you hadn't spent time there. Football in Africa is still about hope. It's about opportunity. It's young kids that have nothing that still have, uh, if nothing else, space and a makeshift ball. The team unity that you try and build. I mean, in Egypt, there's a great story that I love about you. There's food shortages, power outages, just society in turbulence. Your players aren't being paid. You forged such incredible unity with that team. And when you heard that your players had never heard of Bruce Springsteen, what did you do, Bob? I played him a song, Land of Hope and Dreams. Leave behind your sorrows. Let this day be the last. Tomorrow there'll be sunshine and all this darkness past. How did the boss sound to Egyptian ears? They were intrigued by that. <laughs> Not one of them had heard of him. Blew me away. I thought, nah, I have to be a couple that know who he is. It was a way for them to know a little more about me. And when you go into any situation, what you're trying to do is to figure out who are these guys? What makes them tick? And then, little by little, I try to make sure they know who I am. And then we figure out how can we work together? How can we make something special? You'd won six games out of six in qualifying and then were blown off the pitch by Ghana in that first game. You were out. Your journey was just beginning. Next stop. Stabek. In the? Tipa Liga. There you go. You've got All to right. excuse my Norwegian. It's a little rusty. But you became the first American to coach in the European top flight, albeit in the Norwegian top flight. You're a proud man, Bob. At any time in your journey, did you get angry? Did you feel borderline humiliated? You're a man who'd won World Cup games. You'd tied England, and you were suddenly playing before 3,000 fans in the suburbs of Oslo. I had a lot of people who told me not to take that job, but I felt I could prove myself. I've never been one to take jobs just based upon attendance or how big the stadium is or what the gym or the locker room is all about. When I got to Stabek, the dressing room was in a little stadium. 
I walked down the hallway and there was what looked to be a big closet. And in the big closet, there were a few bikes. And I said, what's this? And they go, well, we, it's a little bit storage. And I, I said, well, we need to get that crap out of here. And we need to clean it up. And we need a couple new bikes because this is going to be our gym. And we need a place where before training, we can make sure that guys, maybe not the whole team at once in that space, but a few guys can come and where there can be some work before they go on the field and training, and then after training, there can be other guys that come in. So the idea that you go into any situation, roll up your sleeves, look at all of those players and say, I don't know you, you don't know me, but let's figure out how to make this work, and I enjoy that part. Seems to be the prerequisite for you taking a job, having people tell you, don't take it. I mean, Steinbeck were a tiny team, they'd recently been promoted. You took them to ninth in your first season, and then into third place in European football. Remarkable feat on a shoestring budget with your players warming up in a closet. It was enough for you to land a job at La Havre. Le Hac. Le Hac. Oh, in the French second tier. You said at the time, finally, you were coaching in a big football nation, albeit in a minor league. I've got to ask you, were there moments in your journey when you thought that you were destined to roam around the face of the earth? but never enter your promised land like Moses, but your promised land being the Premier League. I always was hoping that somebody would pay attention and maybe give me a chance, but I didn't carry it around with me every day. I never was bitter about it. I understand that in football, when it comes time to make decisions, decision makers in Europe usually focus their attention on coaches in Europe. And there's a lot of really good coaches in Europe. There's bad ones too, but for me, I still was motivated to try to prove myself. The opportunity at Luav was in a bigger football country, League Two, with the goal to get that team to League One. And still can't believe that on the last day of the season, we needed not only to win, but to turn around the goal differential. We win 5-0. At the same time, <laughs> Lenz is playing Mets, and Lenz is ahead 1-0. And so as we're counting down the minutes of our game and following that game, we either need one more lens goal or one more Luak goal. If that happens, then we've made it to League One. Via the goal scored tiebreaker. Yeah, so we tie with Mets on points. Uh, goal differential's the same. And they end up with two more goals scored. A day of incredible disappointment, but at the same time, still pride that those players poured everything they had out there that day. The response inside the stadium was fantastic. You felt like there was a real connection with the city and that that boded really well for the future. We started the season, a few results didn't go great, but then we pulled it back together. And the next thing you know, there's some interest to talk to the people at Swansea. I had a chance to speak with Hugh Jenkins. It was a good football discussion. He is experienced, he's smart. Some days later, there was a request to meet again, this time with Steve Kaplan and Jason Levine. The American owners. The American owners. And even at that moment, there's no telling what's going to happen. And I go back to Luav because we've got an upcoming game. But this time around, a day or so later, there was a decision to move forward. Swansea is owned by an American consortium. They own a controlling state. Landon Donovan is a stakeholder. Luak, also owned by an American. Vincent Volpe. What role do you believe American owners have played 
in the rise of the first American top flight manager? In both cases, it meant that people knew a little bit about me to begin with. So I wasn't starting from scratch. I don't think their idea was that automatically they were looking to hire an American coach, but they at least were more familiar with my work, more familiar with the way I go about things. They, in all cases, knew some people who knew me. So it just meant you don't start at zero, that you start where there's at least respect for what you've done. And then after that, it's trying to establish some of your ideas with them in return, get an idea of what they are trying to achieve, what's their vision, and then see if there's a match. Your first press conference here. I've rarely heard a Premier League manager ask questions like it. They all seem to be variations of, can you believe that you, an American, are a Premier League manager? One gentleman asked you if you were impressed by the technical level of your players. Does it hurt you when members of the media, like Danny Gabadon, the ex-Wales international, say, I can't take him seriously. I don't know if it's the American accent. Yeah, I don't know this bloke, Danny. I think he's a Cardiff boy. I've never met the guy. I don't think he's watched a training session. When guys go on talk radio, they go on usually to try to stir the pot. And this isn't the first place that that's happened. So I understand it's part of the challenge. I have to concentrate on the work every day. I have to earn my stripes with the players every day in terms of what we do in training. And then, step by step, with a limited amount of time, I have to earn the respect of the supporters and the football people in the UK. Your first game, the kind of experience most of us only savor on the FIFA video game. You were playing Arsene Wenger, 1,130 Premier League games. You, two to three Premier League training sessions under your belt. You're at the Emirates. For a moment, you did seem like a man who was fully aware of the enormity of that moment. Sure, I took the time when I first walked into the stadium that day to look around. I've always told my players, before every big match, take a look into the stands, savor it. I did that, and then pretty quickly I was ready when the referee blew the whistle. Bob, the stakes for your Swansea experience, they seem so high not just for all American coaches who are watching you, but coaches across all of football's new frontier who want you to succeed for their own good. Do you feel that extra weight? Or you just focus only on you in the singular and your own career? I understand the responsibility. There's gonna be a lot of people watching and deciding whether Americans can coach at the highest level based upon my results, so I get that. Are you surprised that there's not more Americans walking your road? Egypt, Norway, the lower levels of European football. You've not only been a pathfinder, but you've been one of the very few walking that road. I think in time, guys will. There is a part to all of this that involves believing in yourself and then taking chances, taking risk. I think that's what life's all about. You can't be afraid of new challenges, that's special. You never know what's around the next bend, so go for it. Your career has been the kind of odyssey that only Homer would really appreciate. You once told a reporter that your wife, Lindsay, she's made the real sacrifice, marching along that odyssey with you, sacrificing her family, her friends, her life, so that you can chase your dreams in a sweltering Cairo, in a freezing Oslo, in La Hack, and now here in Wales. Bob, if the Premier League gods 
don't look kindly upon Swansea this season. Will it still all have been worth it? Sure, because you don't ever do any of this with guarantees. You do it to test yourself. You do it to prove yourself. A long time ago at Princeton, I used to say to the guys, you're all used to guarantees. You're all smart. So you're used to the idea that if you go to Princeton, if you study, you'll get good grades. And now when you show up for soccer practice and for the soccer team, this is going to be the one place where there's no guarantees because you can train very hard and then you may not be the best goalkeeper. You may not be the best right-sided midfielder. You have to understand that in life, to really get somewhere, you do it because you are willing to put everything you have, your heart and soul, into something and go for it. And if you do that, even if the results don't go exactly the way you want, you'll have something that can never be taken away. In today's world, people don't like that idea. People like guarantees. People like the idea that if you put in X, you get out X. But I understood a long time ago that that's not how it works. No matter what happens, I believe in my work. I enjoy what I do every day. I haven't lost my sense of what I'm about and what my family's about and what matters the most. I'll continue to march forward in all the same ways. Bob, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, Bob Bradley. I admire and revere that man, win or lose in Swansea. He's a gent who understands that life is all about making memories and those can never be taken away from you. My film, Premier League Download, Bob Bradley, A Football Odyssey, airs this Boxing Day, December 26th, on NBCSN. Few more DVR alerts for you while we're talking. December 26th, The Men in Blazers, Winter Craptacular, re-airs on NBCSN. We're awful in it, but I have to say our guest, John Oliver, is quite spectacular. Talking about Liverpool, his Jurgen Klopp impression is to be seen, to be believed. My film, Inside the Mind of Pep Guardiola, starring Pep Guardiola, airs January the 2nd, also on NBCSN. And want to tell your DVR to avoid, if possible, the Men in Blazers show returns live from Stamford, Connecticut, in the Premier League studio. Who thought that was a good idea? We're going to have Rebecca Lowe, we're going to have not one, but two Robbies. We may even push for a third. As yet, and disclose, Robbie, that's Wednesday, January the 4th, after Spurs play Chelsea. Happy holidays to you and yours, GFOPs, from all of us in the crap part of Soho. Courage. <laughs>